Let's um, pray together. God, we thank you for these words to us, words that invite us to incline our ears to you, that you listen to the prayers of our hearts. Come and be with us, we pray once more in this time. Amen and amen. Uh, There's a parable that I once heard of a man who knocked on a person's door and a woman answering the door said, how can I help? And he said, I'm sorry to disturb you at such a late hour, but there's a woman who lives two doors down from you who has no money and has lost her job and it's been months since she's been able to find work and her money's run out and the landlord is ready to evict and so she has no place to go, nothing to eat, three small children, can you help? The woman, of course, surprised by this, not knowing, of course, she knew the neighbor. She said, oh, that's horrible. That's terrible news. Yes, please, send her here. I can help. And he said, oh, that's very, very helpful to hear. Thank you so much. And she said, by the way, who are you? I've never met you. He said, oh, I'm her landlord. Um, um, And I just wanted you to see if you could help. It's one of the... um, it's a parable, I think, shows in some ways what's at the heart of this story that we often think is a miracle about food. Um, but it's also a challenge to the disciples, if you think about it. It reminds me of being a parent. I don't know if those of you, if you haven't been a parent, you've been a child. So this is a universal uh, illustration. And uh, you know that children at a certain age become very obsessed with being able to do things on their own. Right? About the age of two or three. Right? And so, you know, for my children, it was this refrain that we heard at a certain age, me do it, me do it, me do it, my do it, my do it, me do it, right? And, and then when they get about five or six years old, me do it turns in, can you do it for me, right? So at about six, I'm, can you make me something to eat? Can you get me some water? Can you do this? Can you do that? And then all of a sudden they become semi-autonomous creatures in late childhood. And then when they hit teenage years, they regress. And it becomes once again, can you do this for me? Can you please? Can you? Can you? In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus is with his disciples. And in some ways it mirrors the frustration of a parent who is constantly kind of beleaguered with these, these questions, can you do this for me, knowing, true, knowing well that the person can do it on their own. As Jesus is finding himself in these hinterlands, in this region an hour away from civilization, as it were, he becomes a bit frustrated with the disciples. And in the rare moment of frustration that's captured by the gospel writers, Um, he lashes out at the disciples. At least that's one way to read it. And I think the question this morning is, what might we learn from this? Uh, The the way that Matthew tells the story of Jesus, um, he tells us Jesus being in a particularly difficult position. I'm thankful that David gave us the preamble about John the Baptist, because I think that's important news that the lectionary doesn't capture when it divides the verses into sections. What's important here to know is that in every other gospel scene where Jesus feeds the 5,000, he is followed by crowds because of all the miraculous signs and wonders that he's doing. So there there are crowds who are following him because he's a rock star. But in this section, in in Matthew's gospel, it seems to be something else is happening, right? That Jesus has just learned that his cousin is dead and that his cousin has been killed by the state, right? And he is wanting to withdraw, to go away. I think one of the ways to read Jesus in this passage is 
is an individual in deep, deep grief, right? Unflinching grief. And so the crowds follow Jesus and go with him. And he sees them and he says he has compassion on them and he heals some of their sick. But one of the interesting things to note is whether the crowds are following him because they want miracles or because they actually want to commiserate with him. That they've seen the compassion that he's poured out on others through his healings and miraculous signs and wonders. And now that he's in deep grief, there's something utterly human about this encounter that they're having with him. And they just want to go and they want to be with him. Now, John was this eccentric figure. He wore funny clothes and he spoke quite forwardly uh, in his public speeches. And he implored people to turn around, to repent, and to prepare. He looked like a strange person and he would often parrot the words of Isaiah, one of the famous prophets of the old tradition of Israel. And his message was one of preparation, preparing for the new way of, of living, the new way of being, the new, what, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And so Jesus withdraws to the countryside upon hearing that this very important figure in his life and in his community's life has died. In the film Lars and the Real Girl, I don't know if you know this movie, in 2007, the very famous actor now for the Barbie movie in Ryan Gosling was in this uh, indie film about a character living in a small town who falls in love with this life-size doll of a woman and um, is in deep grief because the doll passes away. And in one of the scenes, the church ladies come over with their needlework and their casseroles, simply to sit with Lars in his grief, even if it's over a pretend life-size doll. Because as the ladies say, that's what people do when tragedy strikes. They come over and they sit. Perhaps what we're witnessing here in this story is Jesus in his grief and a result that at least 5,000 people have followed him into the hinterlands simply to be with him and to sit with him. Now, at some point, it gets late, and the disciples get nervous. Send these people away. They advise Jesus, but of course, in the original language, the advice is actually a command. They command Jesus, send these people away. And when Jesus hears this, I think that's when he loses it. They don't need to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. You do it. You do it. Who? Us? Me? No, that can't be the case. You can almost hear the frustration in Jesus' voice as to a parent and a child. You're able to do this. The disciples admit to Jesus that they can't make it work, and so they gather all they have, which is only five loaves and two fish, which would you think, that's not even enough to feed 12 men. So what was going on here? Where was the logistical planning? Um, And at the end of it, Jesus does what he always does. He does what he does in the upper room. He takes, and he blesses, and he breaks, and something happens. Something divine, something powerful happens. And at the end of it, there's so much food overflowing that there's 12 baskets left. 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel, seems too good to be true. You do it. It's a rebuke that Jesus gives the disciples, but it's also a challenge to them. How often do we feel that God is simply supposed to fix everything that's wrong in our lives and in our world? 
We become so accustomed to someone else being the answer to our prayers. But what if it's otherwise? What if we heed the words of Jesus and when something is wrong, when we see something wrong, when we hear of something wrong, the first thing we do is think that Jesus is saying to us, you do it. Who? Me? You. Us? Of course, there's often things that we cannot change, both in our lives and in the lives of others. But there's a great many things that we can do other than change to be there with other people to be present to them, to help them see that they're not alone. And in so doing, we tend to lose fact that in this passage, that's what it means to participate in the compassion of Jesus. That the compassion of Jesus isn't some sentimental or abstract notion, that it's actually imminently hands-on and practical. And of course, when we read this passage, we have to come to the business of miracles. Now, I have to confess that when I read these stories, my mind doesn't immediately hover around the prospect of the supernatural. Rather, I'm immediately taken in by the power of the metaphor that the biblical writers are inviting me to think about. The historicity of the events mattered little, I think, to me. And whether Jesus was a great magician doesn't really add anything or take anything away from what we call the power of his life and his death and his resurrection, that historicity is not necessarily where we hang our hats. The Gospels are not histories as such. They tell the truth. And they know what we know as we become adults, that sometimes what's fact and truth are not always the same thing. Now, the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann once said about miracle stories in the Bible that we are not to read them as mere supernatural events. He says that when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, He is driving out of creation the powers of destruction, and he is healing and restoring created beings who are sick and hurt. He says that the lordship of God, to which the healings witness, restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Say that one more time. Jesus' healings and his miracles in general are not supernatural things in a natural world, but rather they're the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural and demonized and wounded. And so I'd like to think the same thing is true about the miracle before us this morning. Perhaps one of the things that Jesus and Matthew is trying to tell us and his community is these things like hunger and these wicked problems like food insecurity. Yet these things are as natural as they come. And in spite of thinking that God will fill the gap in someone else's stomach, the true miracle begins to happen when ordinary people like you and me open up and give what little we have to address someone's need and their lack. You can almost hear the voice of Jesus. You do it. You feed them. And in so doing, discover that you are part of a million little ordinary miracles that go unnoticed each and every day, and that's how the world still spins. And so we say to ourselves, what's the miracle inside the miracle? Perhaps it's to come back to the story, which at its core has this idea that God is inviting us to have a mindset of abundance, that he's judging 
a sense of scarcity that we carry each and every day. He is judging zero-sum thinking. He is challenging the disciples who just a few chapters ago were doing their own healings and their own miracles. And then when they have all these hungry people in front of them, come up with nada, nothing, and turn to Jesus and say, you got to send these people away. This is too big for us. And Jesus whispers to them, no, it's not. Have faith. You do it. You don't have to look around our world too much these days to see uh, talking heads and candidates for what somebody at a conference this week called the beauty pageant in October, which I thought was a lovely way to think of the election. Um, But there's a lot of scarcity talk. There's a lot of language around. There's only so much to go around. Who's going to get sacrificed? Who's going to get the goods? Who's going to get the tax? Who's going to get the resources? How will we manage? There's a lot of scarcity thought, a lot of scarcity talk. And at the end of it, what's underneath all of that is this commonplace idea that we want to live in a culture where somebody gets sacrificed, right? Where somebody misses out. But why? Why do we choose to believe this? Why do we buy into the idea that there's only so much to go around? Why don't we see this as the same predicament that the disciples were confronted with? Five loaves and two fish. What if this scarcity mindset that the disciples carried is, is precisely the unnatural way, the demonization that Moltmann says miracle stories are here to interrupt in the first place? What would it look like if we all decided to stop turning to whatever political party or government is in power to do the work that belongs to us, the average neighbors in the world? Here's the hard part. Here's the faith bit this morning. Is that God believes that the kingdom of God is in each and every one of us. And that God believes that you and I have the power to work miracles in the lives of the people in our midst. Ordinary miracles in ordinary ways of people living here and now in and amongst us. What little I have gets added to what little you have, and in the end, we have 12 baskets overflowing. So the next time we encounter a problem, next time you begin to pray that someone else, even God, would work some magic in the lives of someone you know, in some situation, you might first want to hear the whispering word of Jesus to his disciples, saying, you do it, and wonder, me? And hear him say, you. And together we say, us. And God says, yes. Thanks be to God. Amen.